Hello and welcome to Falter Ego episode 15. Um, I should give you a bit of a warning on this one. We're going to be talking about some pretty um, sad, uh, sad and deep stuff because uh, it feels very strange to be telling you this. But um, after uh, my previous, uh, the previous episode where I was talking about, you know, how um, happy I was to have gone home to the UK to help look after my mum or help my dad look after my mum because uh, she has, you know, worsening dementia and I found that quite traumatic and difficult and um, there's a lot to process there and a lot of patience required and all these sorts of things. And I I was, yeah, I was quite happy with the fact that I was able to go home as the uh, near 40-year-old that I am, uh, now possessed of a few little handy... Um, yeah, skill sets and stuff that, that, that made the whole experience just that little bit easier. Not that it was easy and not, as I said, I didn't drift through the whole experience like some sort of Zen master floating on a cloud. I did find it extremely difficult and I broke down a few times, but overall, you know, I, I got through and it was mostly thanks to, you know, a few little techniques that I've picked up here and there. Anyway, um, Rather unexpectedly, I came back to, yeah, I mean, I came back to Australia um, and, you know, starting to get over everything and recuperating and, you know, resting a little bit and, but also not resting because I was straight back into the swing of things, looking after my kid and all this sort of stuff. Um, And then out of the blue, I got a phone call from my sister uh, letting me know that my father um, had suddenly and unexpectedly um, passed away and it was extremely unexpected because I, you know, I, I'd spent a lovely three weeks with him and he seemed in, you know, ostensibly in, in absolutely, you know, fine fettle as, as they would say. And, um, you know, he's, he was, he was an absolutely remarkable 78 year old, um, all there doing cryptic crosswords every day, sharp as anything. I I really, you know, I said to friends when I got home, you know, I really struggled to tell the difference between him at, you know, 78 and him at 55. Like he was just, you know, um, and, you know, physically active, um, you know, he'd, he'd taken up recently taken up the responsibility of doing all of the dog walks instead of some of them because my mum has started, um, sort of shuffling on her, on her feet and so she can't so be trusted to go and walk the dog without, you know, falling over and having a nasty accident. So, you know, he was, he, you know, so he was doing these, you know, long walks two sort of 40 minute walks a day, then coming back through the front door, not out of breath, you know, not struggling. Like he wasn't, he didn't look sweaty, he looked absolutely fine. He would be through the front door, like who want, right. Who wants a cup of tea? You know, sort of straight into it. Um, and so the news that he seems, I mean, we, we don't know all the details yet, but he seems to have suffered some, uh, some sort of massive, um, yeah, I guess heart attack, I, I suppose, um, is, a, is a huge shock and, and has thrown the family into disarray because obviously there's the issue of, of what to do with mum now and all these, there's the, the domino um, effect that, or the ripple effect of the, huge web of, uh, of knock on decisions and conundrums this now creates is, is overwhelming. And, um, 
So I found myself in shock and being overwhelmed uh, at a stage where I was already in shock and overwhelmed. And um, I, I, you know, I don't, for the first few days, I was quite concerned that my, my body and mind wouldn't be able to um, sort of juggle or straddle or metabolize this sort of double decker of, <laughs> of awfulness. Um, and so, yes, I, but again, um, I'm fortunate in the sense that, um, well, I'm fortunate in a few ways. One is that I did go home at all. I mean, imagine that. Imagine if I hadn't seen him, um, and this had happened. So, you know, COVID kicked in, in early, what was it? 2020. And I, I, I managed to see them in January, 2020, just before, you know, back then, just when, uh, you know, there was, the, if you were reading newspapers at the time, there was, you know, rumors of, uh, some strange little flu in China. That's where it was at that point. So I saw them then, and then they left Australia and then that's, you know, and then that was it. Um, and I hadn't seen them since, yeah, January 2020. So I'm extremely lucky that I, you know, snuck in this visit home in what turned out to be the penultimate month of his life. Um, I, I just, you know, it's, I'm extremely lucky. I can't think of it any other way, really. Um, but also, you know, it, it happening in this way, in this in this shocking way, it's not like we had time to prepare and also, you know, all our sights were sort of set on mum in a, in a way. You know, all our focus was on mum. Um, when I was home, most of my attention was on mum, you know. So it's a lot of like what ifs and all these sorts of things. And, oh, I should have talked to him more and all that kind of stuff. But um, the the impact of that sort of, uh, of, of most of our mental space and dedication and focus being on mum has meant that, yeah, the, my dad just suddenly passing away has, has really shocked us. And I thought I would use this episode to reflect on a couple of things. Um, one is, again, how fortunate I am to have uh, been confronted by this experience at a time in my life where I'm somewhat, um, I'm somewhat uh, better, more slightly more uh, equi- better equipped to handle the awfulness of it. And I thought I would talk through that for a moment. Um, what to me. Um, is useful that the thing the thing to remember right is uh, i think a lot of people think mindfulness and meditation and all these sorts of things are kind of meant to neutralize feelings or kind of make you a bit uh disconnected or cold or detached um you, you know i I've, I've you feel everything but you I, I think you get given or provided with this just extra um, layer or channel, TV channel to tune into where you can sort of watch everything uh, with a bit of distance and just ex- accept that these things are happening. So I, I've, I, I've, I've found grief um, so far to be an extremely physical process. I didn't, I wasn't expect. I've, I mean, I haven't really 
you know, my grandfather was living with us when he died when I was about seven. Um, I haven't really encountered a, 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 f- a grief as full on as this um, since. I've been quite lucky in that regard. Um, but I wasn't, I, so I, I didn't know what to expect. And I, you know, I just let it be whatever it is. Um, and I wasn't expecting it to be quite so physical, like just in a few ways. One, my chest felt sort of um, a weird mix of tight and vulnerable, like I wanted to close in my chest. I've, I was rounding my shou- uh, shoulders a lot, uh, trying to make myself feel a bit small or something and hunching a bit. Um, I've, I have felt um, for the first two or three days extremely out of breath and um, just sighing a lot as if every sigh would somehow alleviate this kind of horrible tension um, in my chest. I've still got it a bit now. You might hear me kind of going, you know, um, (laughs) doing it now. Um, But yeah, as if each sigh would somehow deflate this tension in my body Um, and it doesn't. You just keep sighing. It's like trying to deflate and, um, you know, a self-perpetuating balloon that keeps topping itself up or an infinite balloon and every sigh just, it's still there. It's still exactly the same size. Um, I felt uh, a horrible, uh, I can't describe it. It's, it's extremely hard to put into words, a sort of a hum or a buzz or a tingle or a just, the, I guess, the a physical awareness of a sort of buzzing, um, almost like a vibe. <laughs> it's just a weird way to put it. Um, like that permeate, that sits somewhere just beneath or just above the skin and everywhere in between. So it's almost like a three centimeter thick um, field of just shit, feeling like shit that sits all over my skin. Um I don't mean that in like, you know, a sort of skin condition kind of way, like eczema. I mean, like skin is just the location of this horrible um, tension slash buzz, hum, uh, aura almost. I mean, I I don't believe in auras, but, you know, if I had an aura, I imagine that's where it would be. And this one feels like a shit one. Yeah. just like the Aldi, the Aldi version of a of an aura, like I picked up like a knockoff. So I just <laughs> just feel horrible from like in my skin and to all the way to the tips of my fingers, and um, I wasn't expecting that. Just be walking around carrying um, this shock. It's almost like my an energy field around my body has absorbed um, absorbed this shock. You know. Um, can't think of you know in black panther when they say oh your suit uh when people punch you it turns turns it into kinetic energy and so you then you end up with like this energy field all over your suit i feel like that i feel like the grief has just hit me and then my body has just tried to metabolize it by spreading the grief around at surface level um so i've just got this nasty like itchy um feeling of it's almost like imagine if your arms could be afraid you know this fear this feeling of fear in my skin and my limbs um 
So yeah, tight chest, hunched shoulders, closing in on myself, out of breath, this horrible sensation in the in the skin or above and just below it. Um, and so that's that's been my experience. That was my experience of the first few days, which is this awful shock. Um, on top of, of course, the 200 million thoughts that pass through your mind about, you know, I was angry. Um, there's lots of anger there, partly about, you know, that was his last two years was, you know, he just, and the other thing was, he, you know, he just finished really working. He'd worked 50 years hard, you know, to provide for his family and give us a nice home and all these sorts of things. He just retired. And his last two years were, all right, now your wife has got this awful condition and uh, you got to stay in your house because <laughs> there's this virus. And then just as things were opening up, I mean, we're talking, you know, it's only been a few months really since life has approached anything r close to normal. Um you know, and there are still reminders everywhere. He's still got to wear masks in certain places and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, I think he he was he stood he stood a chance of recapturing some joy, and just as it's like it's almost like he just reached the finish line, and then just just short of the finish line, he you know he he passed on. So, I've um, I'm angry about that. I'm angry about lots of personal things to do with our family, like you know things we almost did and milestones he's you know missed or things we put off that were quite big things i won't go into the details of it but there's a one or two quite big things that we had planned within our family that got delayed also partly because of covid and all this sort of stuff and again we were just starting to have conversations about doing them and putting them back on the agenda you know when's this going to happen and when are we finally going to you know and also you know, meet, meeting his granddaughter um another one more time would have been nice because the last time he saw her she was three now she's um, just about to turn six. So all these sorts of things. Um, anyway, so there's a huge physical dimension to it that I wasn't expecting and a huge mental aspect to it, which I was expecting. I was expecting a lot of thinking and what ifery, you know, and what about this and why didn't I do that? And so I, I was expecting the emotional side, but I, I wasn't quite expecting grief to manifest quite so, um, physically, um, I'd be interested to hear what what any of you might have experienced in a similar um, fashion or different. How 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 has grief manifested for you? Um, but fortunately, all of it, um, even even in my worst moments, I'm I've been able to just bring myself back to my breath, and just not that the breath overrides everything it's not like breath is some magical uh cerebral eraser that just you know wipes out horrible feelings it's not it's really a reference point um at this point it, it's it's something that you know you're being buffeted around in tumultuous high seas you know and you know your breath is just a rather flimsy life raft, you know, um, one of those sort of inflatable spherical orange ones. Um, but you know, sharks have bitten at it and it's leaking, but it's, it'll do, you know? Um, so it's that you're still in the sea, 
you know, it's not like you've been airlifted by a chopper to safety and now you're on dry land, you know, breath, coming back to the breath didn't provide that for me, but it's, it just provided a life raft that, uh, or a reference point that I could cling to and watch the awful feelings uh, unfold. And then, and then, you know, the, the healthy part of that is it, it actually allows you to engage with your grief without getting too um, sort of caught up in it. Um, and I, you know, so it's not avoidance at all. Some people think, you know, when you hear phrases like, you know, Buddhism is about not attaching, you know, avoiding attachment that somehow, therefore, that being, you know, you are detached and somehow cold and emotionless. It's not that at all. If anything, it's it's a truer engagement with your emotions because you're just able to fully appreciate them, um, and engage. And you know, and in doing so, I think that I think that's a more truthful experience. It's like you know, have have you really appreciated the Mona Lisa if you stared at it with your eyeball pressed to the canvas? You know, because all you're going to be able to see there is like a brown smudge. Um, but by stepping back a bit, you're able to fully take in the full complexity and implications and, you know, what, what that painting is actually of. And I think that's a nice way of looking at it, you know, meditating and, and, and finding a, a, a sort of cognitive uh, vantage point from which to observe your feelings rather than hugging them and running up to them and going, hey, there's some suicidal depression. I'm going to go and wrap my arms around that. Well, that's, that's too, that's attachment. You're too close to it. That's not you. That's just a cloud passing in the sky. Um, and again, you know, it's like having your eyeball pressed against the canvas. You're not really, is that, is, is, is saying I am depressed or I'm in grief or I am grief, you know, is that, uh, is that a, is that a, um, the most accurate representation of your feelings and are you experiencing them to their fullest? Weirdly, by being quote-unquote detached, you do experience your grief more fully because you're able to, you know, really take it in. Um, so I was able to watch, you know, I was able to watch these horrible emotions and I'm still going through it now, of course. I'm not, it's only been a week, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I'm only just able to record this now, to be honest. I've been in such a state. So it's not like I've been, you know, again, I've not been super calm or anything. I've been in really in the throes of it, you know, breaking down crying and really ugly crying as well, like the shoulder shaking, sort of uh, body convulsing crying. Um, so it's not been pretty. I've not been, you know, sitting on a rock slowly you know growing moss on my legs because I've become one with the with the landscape not at all but what what else are you going to do if, if you're going to go through all that you may as well let it happen and just watch it happen you know it's interesting actually how what a, what a discipline it is just to sit with and watch your feelings for quite a long time I um my intention for this episode was to talk about the the um my switch to using a dumb phone because I recently purchased a really shit phone because I wanted to get off my iPhone and sort of decommission my iPhone in a way. Um, and I'll probably, I will do an episode on how that's going and uh, how inconvenient it is and what that's taught me about 
our uh, engagement with you know smart technology generally but um, I was going to do that as an episode instead of this one and then obviously my, my father passed away and I thought I kind of really wanted to talk about my experience of grief um, but I will say the, the lovely thing about having a dumb phone in the specific context of grief is that um, my, my body has clearly wanted to go through some stuff and my, you know, my mind and my emotions. And I found myself, you know, meditating in, you know, in the brief moments that I get without my kid. Um, I found myself meditating and watching just these awful thoughts and awful what ifs and crying with my eyes closed in the, you know, half lotus position. I must have looked really weird. <laughs> if anybody would have looked at me, if anybody had seen me, fortunately I was at home, but if I'd done that publicly, see some guy with his legs crossed and his eyes closed, just sobbing, it's like, wow, meditation looks shit. Is that what it does? Um, but I was able to watch everything happen and it would be interesting because I would, I would sort of go through periods of gratitude and smiling and thinking of happy memories and I'd watch those drift by and then, then I'd think of... Um, silly moments we had together where I was like, oh, I wish I'd said this. And if I'd known, if only I'd known, I would have said blah, blah, blah. I thought about the rubbish hug I gave him as he, uh, as we parted ways before I went to the airport. Last time I saw him, we, we, he and I were terrible at hugging each other. It always just looked like, I don't know, two, two fish on land <laughs> trying to, I don't know, trying to, uh, give each other a handshake or something, just like flapping around. It just didn't never, never worked. But I just think to that last hug that we had, that silly, awkward hug, um, like two impossible Tetris pieces that refused to fit together. Um, and how I wish I just nailed that hug for one more time. And then again, regret about that regret and go, no, but that is how we hugged and you should just appreciate that. And then crying and then blah, blah. But I just moved through all these sort of phases. And then sometimes weirdly, I would, I would just suddenly fall asleep, exhausted, like almost instantaneously, like lights off, kind of someone flicked a switch. And, um, I realized that just how much my body was going through. Um, and, and again, and again, like I said, it was a physical process and just realizing that it's, it's, it's like a, a, the worst workout you could ever devise because my body was just going through all these different like tingly goosebumps about happy memories and then shoulders shaking and uh, muscles freezing up and closing in on myself when I cry and stuff. And I'd reached the end of this like 30-minute cycle being hit by way peaks and troughs, you know, waves just of, of awfulness just smashing me in the face. And then suddenly I'll just drop asleep for like six minutes and I'd wake up through all of that and I would feel, I would feel like a slither of a percent better. You know, it's no, I'm not saying like I moved suddenly, well, suddenly I moved through a whole stage of grief in 10 minutes. You know, it's not, um, not that. I'm still progressing at the same speed I imagine most people do. Um, but these little... I would, you know, these waves would hit and crash and smash me and I'd get tired and I'd fall asleep and I'd let it happen and I'd come through all that just a little bit better and then able to go about the next few hours before it 
you know, it'd kick off all again. And I, I, I reflected on that and I reflected on, you know, a few moments when I was going through that sort of horrible internal roller coaster. I remember witnessing an impulse in my shoulder down to my fingers to pick up my smartphone. I could see it. I could almost see it like a color, like it was almost like a physical shape in my mind's eye. This this urge down my left arm to pick up my iPhone and distract myself. And I think that's what I probably would have done, um, you know, a few weeks ago before I got my the world's worst phone. Um, I'll have to talk about that another time. But um, <laughs> some fun anecdotes about trying to procure one of those. Um, people just don't believe you. But, um, you know, if, I, if I'd had a smartphone, I think feeling that bad, I would have distracted myself, you know, and I would have picked it up. Oh, fuck, I don't want to feel like that. I need something to distract me. Um, and I would have looked Instagram or, you know, see what's going on with the Queen on Twitter or, you know, any, any of that stuff. Or, see, you know, read the news and all that, done a wordle, all those sorts of things. Um and that's probably bad because your body's there going, hey, no, I need, I need to go through something here. I'm working through something. And I, I was nearly through that sort of cycle. And you've just kind of hit pause on that and, and gone and looked at something else. So the, the looking at something else isn't, isn't part of the process. It's, it's a, an abandonment of the process. And I'm, I'm just glad I didn't have that distraction and I kind of forced myself to almost like, you know, tie myself to the mast of my own um, mental internal ship and just be forced to ride through this awful, um, the awful seas of, of what was going on inside me. And, it, you know, by doing that, I know that my body processed some things um, by the end of it. And I felt a little bit better. And again, I'm talking like slithers of a percent better, you know, I'm, since my father passed away, I've, I must have done that exercise maybe 20 or 30 times in the past week, you know, in the morning, at night, when my daughter's been at school, you know, four or five times a day. And each time it just, I feel like a bit of toxin or something has been processed or filtered out or something. Just feels like, um, or like a fever when your fever breaks and finally, you know, you're through the worst bit. So I'm glad I've, I've, uh, I'm, I'm glad mindfulness has provided me a little sort of reference point or vantage point from which to engage with what this, this awful process is because, um, it just means I'm, my body is dealing with it and I, I, and I am processing it and I am, I am grieving in the fullest possible way rather than and I and I've watched a couple of shit movies, and I have I've allowed myself that as well, but only when I've done a bit of work in just seeing what's going on inside and and, and letting it be. I wanted to slightly change subjects or bounce off from this experience to uh, reflect also on something maybe we can learn from my father's experience because uh, that would be a nice way if something constructive comes out of um, what he went through I think that's that's possibly a good thing um, and it, stri- it strikes me that his generation and 
and mine slash subsequent generations after me. I think I, I just qualify for Gen Y. But, um, you know, Gen Z and on, I think they, they have two opposing sets of the same problem, um, which is either rejecting or over-attaching to um, one's um, suffering or mental states. By that I mean, so my dad tirelessly um, cared for my mum with a level of stoicism that, you know, I've, I find astonishing. I spent three weeks, as you know, back home helping him look after mum and I, I found that absolutely exhausting. Uh, really hard work um, because it was. There's no getting around it. But um, he he didn't really ask for much help. He he did, you know. He he would message. He would get my my sister lives, you know, ten minute drive away. So she he would lean on her a fair bit, but um, only when there was absolutely no alternative, where you know he wasn't able to help mum because he was in her eyes, the source of the problem when he, when, when she was thinking, you know, he was uh, an imposter. So, you know, he had to call in someone else, but he, you know, he, um, he just, he never asked for help because he didn't want to cause a fuss. And there's, and he also, you know, his, his mood and his emotions clearly declined. You know, his, his friends were saying, you know, oh, he doesn't seem himself. He seems a bit depressed, but he never complained and he never um, owned up to feeling down. And he, you know, he just, in his mind, he just had to keep going. And if he accepted um, or acknowledged that he was feeling bad, the, that that to him, I guess it's something that generation, especially that generation of English people, British people, that sort of stiff upper lip sort of um, principle. To them, that's seen as uh, a sign of failure or... Uh, Size, something a bit tawdry about like you know announcing that you're depressed or struggling and so there's there's a rejection there right there's a rejection of how you're feeling like, nope not going to talk about it no nope, no nope, if I you know I can't I don't want to cause a fuss he would often say I don't want to cause a fuss um and I don't want pe- people to fuss over me um so there's this fear of you know create generating a fuss um and so that that to me is a, a version of like rejecting feelings, right? It's, it's being scared of what you're going through and refusing, trying to push them away. Uh, the, and the problem is when you try and push a feeling away, ironically, you're still tied up in a relationship with it because to push something, you have to connect with it, don't you? You can't push something away without making contact with it. So pushing feelings away is a, is a form of, Ironically, it's a form of attachment, right? It's, I mean, it's the flip side of the coin to attachment. And that's not, um, unfortunately, for that generation. And it's, you know, it's not just my dad. It's, there's so many, you know, men in their, oh, I don't know what age, definitely 70s plus, maybe even 60s plus, um, especially from England. But, you know, um, that stiff upper lip thing. But there's a whole generation of men and women um, but I, again, I suppose men as well. And that, this is also how patriarchy plays into this because no, no, a man doesn't complain. So I mean that, you know, the patriarchy did my dad over as well. Um, but there's, there's a whole generation who just 
reject and are scared of their feelings rather than accepting them. Well, this is what I'm feeling. Well, let's talk about it and uh, move on, you know. Um, Whereas conversely, I I would say the pendulum has swung in my generation alone with... um, with almost the opposite, which is an almost pride of feeling awful or like a sort of pride in a, or sort of an over attachment to certain mental health conditions. Um, and again, you know, Eastern spirituality tells us that it, neither of these two things is good for us, right? Rejecting your feelings isn't, going to turn out very well for you and over attaching to them. I am grief. I am depression. That is me. That is a hundred percent me. <laughs> that, that, that is the, that is all I'm made up of. There is a, there is a, a black thin pencil outline of a human. And then all the coloring in and all the shading in, in the middle is just a hundred percent. I'm just shaded in with depression or whatever. Um, that also isn't, healthy and and I think as we progressively moved more and more towards this sort of online culture because that's increasingly where we're spending our time it's just something I've picked up on and I I perhaps lack the tools to properly articulate what's wrong with that whether whether or not it's even wrong at all I could be barking up the wrong tree entirely but to me to me if if you know a spiritual practice that is has successfully made, you know, millions of people happy and is, you know, generally backed up by science and even, you know, Western psychologies, you know, uh, uses the same techniques and, you know, says, you know, you've got to look at your feelings and your mental illness from, you know, um, as if it's anything else, you know. You don't identify with your diabetes, you know. Um, I would say... Yeah, this culture of saying I, as a person of, oh, sorry, as a person with, you know, um, as a speaking as a depressed person, there's lots of tweets that begin with, as a person who has, you know, as a person with, and then your illness, as if that's the most important thing about you. And I'm not sure what has, um, what's engendered that sort of, um, engagement with mental health. I don't know why that's become this sort of almost meme-like way of talking, um, because it's not. If if you know, if you are concerned about your mental health, you know, over-attaching with it, it, it isn't. I don't think that's. That, I don't think that's going to help. I mean, slowly it's emerging in a, you know fledgling studies and things like this. To, you know. So, uh, a lot of mental illness that we previously thought might be due to a chemical imbalance in the brain potentially might not be. It might be more the world that's the problem, um, not us. Um, and so saying there's something wrong with me, I'm the problem, I'm depressed, I have anxiety. Well, yeah, you do, but it's not That's not. It's not because that's written into your DNA. You know, I've, I've, because I've got a daughter. You know, I've, I've been reading a lot of books on child raising and how to raise optimistic kids and kids who are resilient and have strong mental health and all this sort of stuff. And you know, these books 
I think what they say about kids, I think also should apply to adults. You know, it says that, you know, kids have, might have a genetic predisposition to, you know, anxiety, depression, ADHD, but those things will only manifest if they're in an environment which triggers that predisposition. It's not, it's not a foregone conclusion. It's like, you know, if, if you have a suppressed immune system or you're more, more prone to catching colds, you're still only going to catch a cold if there's one around. It's not, doesn't mean you now have colds forever. They have to be colds in the environment. They have to be, you know, the cold and the flu in the environment in order to then take advantage of your particular genetic predisposition to catching them, you know. So again, yeah, if, if you, you might have a genetic predisposition to ADHD or something like that, but the environment still has to do its work in triggering those and taking advantage of those predispositions. So, you know, and we do live in an environment that's really unhealthy. There's nothing healthy about working most hours of the day going home and eating processed foods with chemicals that also we know now aren't, aren't great for brain function and then wondering, oh yeah, why can't, why do I have problem focusing on, you know, people's conversation? Why do I have trouble, tr- trouble sleeping? Oh, what's that? Inflation's going up and I don't have enough money to pay my mortgage. I wonder why I'm waking up in the night with anxiety because society <laughs> is an anxious, is an anxious place to live. It's not you. And obviously, look, there there are obviously going to be people who, it, it, you know, there is definitely a chemical um, something going on there. There's definitely, you know, their brain, um, unfortunately, doesn't function the way it, it's supposed to. I'm, I'm not saying all mental illness is just like, it's in, you should go and live on a vegetable farm and everyone will be fine. There are some people who do gen, genuinely have like real innate, you know, problems, but... I think that even though that's the case, that doesn't mean going online and saying, as a person with this, as a person, as a person with that, as a depressed person. So, well, you're a person who displays depressed characteristics, but I wouldn't make that part and parcel of your identity. I wouldn't say, you know, because I've, I've struggled with various um, mental health blips in my life, some of them quite severe, and I, you know, I would, I would, you know, I rarely talk about it on this podcast. Um, I mean, they've, all of these blips are, I'm not going to lie, uh, a fraction of the motivation I've had in the past to begin engaging with, you know, mindfulness techniques and all this sort of stuff, along with a lot of other things like regular exercise. I'm a keen runner, you know, um, cold water immersion and all that sort of hippie shit. But it's, you know, worth a try isn't it it's better than just not trying um what was i saying you know i've i've yes i've had a lot of these uh long tracts of my life uh wallowing in these sorts of horrible spaces as well and i i think that's the least defining and least interesting part of me i think the most interesting thing about me is everything i've che- i've achieved or done or tried to achieve and failed um despite any mental health problems I have, not, I, I think that's what's me. The, me. the mental health part is quite possibly environmental. It's quite possibly a, an allergic reaction to a shit society. You know, it's like, oh, this person 
is lactose intolerant. And they just they just shat their pants. Maybe they're just a, a pants shitting person. It's like, no, it's just because you fed them a gallon of cheese. Like it's caused by something had to happen there, you know. Um and so I think, yeah, I, you know, we, I don't think the course correction from one generation that was so stoic should be to go the other way and make our mental illnesses the most interesting part of us or the, the defining part of our personalities. I don't, um, and again, I, I say that that's quite a blanket statement and I'm, I'm very conscious of making blanket statements because any blanket statement is, is, by definition, bound to be wrong as soon as you find one example that disproves it. So I'm not I'm not saying, you know, please don't listen to this thinking, you know, oh, Jazz Twombly thinks there's no such thing as mental illness. Of course there is. Jazz Twombly thinks there's no such thing as, you know, some sort of neurological problems. Of course there are. But there, there's also a cultural shift online of making that sort of almost like, the most, yeah, I don't know, the most interesting part of you or some club that you now belong to. You know, there's lots of people saying, hey, you know, hey, everyone, my depressed brothers and sisters. It's like, why have you made that the cornerstone of your existence when we know from centuries of or millennia of Eastern thought that um, your, thought, your thoughts are, are something you need to stand back from, not not make it some sort of online fan club to your internal landscape. Are you fucked up? Me too. Let's form a club and talk about it all the time and make it the only thing about us that we're, that we're allowed to talk about. I just find it's a weird course correction and and possibly not healthy. I, I, you know, I wish my dad had talked about um, his struggle in the last two years a bit more and and asked for help because saying, no, there's nothing wrong, I'm fine, don't talk about it, don't cause a fuss, that's not right. But also only causing a fuss is also, that's gone the other way. And we, we need a space where it's okay to, it's, it's feel okay about not feeling okay and feeling crap and talking about it, but talking about it with a sense of... um almost like clinical observation and like, yeah, look, I had a a depressed thought yesterday or something rather than over identifying with it and making it the, the sort of the linchpin of your um, entire identity. Cause that too will lead to suffering for sure. A hundred percent guaranteed. And I think the other, the other problem with, sort of mental illness becoming the defining characteristic of someone is that eventually it, it, it can create spaces in which mental illness then becomes hard to talk about. It's like, you know, it's, it's like when, um, if you, you know, if somebody says two plus two equals five and you point out, oh no, sorry, you made a mistake there. It's actually four. There's no harm there. You know, no, correcting them hasn't uh, destroyed their soul and they're not offended apart from maybe their arithmetic pride or something. Whereas, you know, back in the day, you know, when, when the new atheism movement came out, um, you know, Richard Dawkins and all these people, you realise that, you know, to criticise someone's religion or to science, try and scientifically prove that, I don't know, 
just making this up, but like, you know, Jesus didn't exist. That That's actually pulling the rug out from underneath someone's conceptualization of their self. Like I am Christian and nobody is a, a two plus two equals fiveist. You know, that's not a religion. You don't make that part of your identity. That's just a mistake. But if your mistake is your entire identity, you've created a space there where it's hard to engage with the truth of the matter. Because if I say, look, I don't think, you know, if you look at these documents, it's actually very unlikely that this, this and this happened and blah, blah, blah. I said, well, but Jesus is the cornerstone. I was raised in a Christian family. You know, you've made something, the, but if you make something the cornerstone of your existence, if you over-attach to something, um, it obfuscates the truth because it makes it harder to get into it. Um, but I think, I think to, to bring this back to, to my, to my dad and his experience, you know, there, there is, uh, I, I don't think this applied to my dad so much, but that we are in creating, I, I've seen a few online conversations now where, and again, online isn't necessarily the place you should be going to sample, um, <laughs> the quality of humanity's conversations. Um, it's a bit of a sort of uh, confirmation bias. Um, it's a bit like, you know, you know, when you're at a public talk or a public event and they say, and now any questions and, you know, people line up at two microphones either side of the auditorium. It's always, always the people who haven't thought their questions through who are first to the microphone because the people who have a really good question are still sitting in their chairs going, now, hang on, how should I phrase this? People with awful questions will always arrive there first and it creates this misconception that people asking questions at public talks is a bad idea because, it's again, it's just like confirmation bias or self, self-reinforcing self sort of, um, yeah, self-perpetuating problem where, yeah, the people, people who are hasty and leap out of their seats probably get to the microphone having not even thought of their question yet and yet they are the ones who are asking the questions. Anyway, the reason I raise that, it's just to point out that I'm well aware that sampling sampling online conversations is intrinsically flawed because only the people who think online is the best place to hash these things out are the ones there hashing it out. So it's, it's you know, you're not getting the creme de la creme of public discourse. But um, I have noticed, nevertheless, a trend online. I've, I've noticed a few conversations where... Um, and, and actually, this does this does relate specifically to my dad, but not that he ever said any of these things. But people online, sort of carers, coming out and saying, I don't, "There was a really specific example that I won't go into because I don't want to name names, right? And I, you don't need to go looking it up, but just trust me that it happened." Um, it was like carers just talking about the toll on their lives and their mental health in in looking after someone with a severe mental illness, um, you know, like you know, having a child with ADHD or autism or depression or, you know, sort of any, any, any of these things. And the backlash to it was like, you know, how, oh, yeah, it's difficult for you. It's not, not as bad as what they're going through, though, is it? Or... You know, how dare you reduce your child to just some problem that you have to deal with? So, again, because because we've um, made mental illness part of the identity of someone, it suddenly becomes a class of person, and therefore, 
therefore now we have to be protective about how we talk about it um, because talking about it um, clumsily risks offending a certain class of people. I'm a person with ADHD and if I, you know, my dad never said that. So, you know, well done you for making it all about you. Yeah. Your kid's mental health is, <laughs> think people, your kid's mental health is about one, your kid, two, not you. Like all these just clever fucking replies, you know? Um, and so you, we've, you know, you create this space where, it's unacceptable for carers to talk about the toll on them for fear of offending the people with the condition because the people with the same condition have over-attached and over-identified with something that there's a small chance actually isn't the most interesting or most defining part of you. You know, there's a lot of science to suggest that, you know, mental health is environmental. It comes from the outside. It doesn't come from within. It's actually... Um, not self-generating, you know, it doesn't come from you. And again, I say that with the, the obvious and enormous caveat that there are there are people where that is the case, where it is from you. But it's just this blanket conversational manner online that I think, you know, I mean, my, my again, this is an interesting observation or similarity to draw across generations, but, you know, my dad didn't kick up a fuss because um, he wanted to be stoic and he wanted to be selfless and he didn't want to make it about him. He was a very um, egoless, you know, selfless person who, who pretty much all day did things to, you know, help other people. Um, so he, he didn't want to complain because, you know, stiff upper lip, you don't complain. Whereas now... Um, I mean, we're, we're a generation that's quite good at complaining. You know, we often go on Twitter, hey, at Qantas, you know, where's my, you know, to the baggage handler, yeah, I'm sure specific baggage handlers are checking the Qantas Twitter feed. <laughs> Idiot. Um, whereas now we step back from complaining for fear of um, writing off some entire, sw- you know, writing off someone's, uh, lived experience. Um, and I guess there is a paradox here, isn't there? Which is that in sort of telling carers or people who live in proximity to others with mental mental illness, in, in telling them to shut up, <laughs> in silencing them, so you're not, you have no right to complain because what they're going through is much worse. Ironically, you're denying their lived experience, which is that they're now developing mental health problems from the burden of looking after people with mental health problems. So there's a, there's a weird um, catch 22 there or, or something, but I just, you know, I, I look at my dad's experience and I would hate for anyone to tell him, no, you're not allowed to complain because that's centering you. You're well done for centering yourself in someone else's problem. It's like, well, but looking after other people's problems is hard. <laughs> that's why, that's why it's a job. Like I, I think, you know, there's, there's a certain lack of, I don't know, maturity online or something where we're just, we're not allowed. 
we're not allowed to admit things other people are uh, difficult to deal with, are we? Because it might offend them. Well, but then you're asking a whole fleet, a whole workforce to shut up and not say that this is hard because for fear of offending someone else who has a problem, you know. Why are we lying to ourselves? Why, why are we saying you're not allowed to speak up about the, the burden this can be, you know? And a, and a burden even when it's someone you love that you're looking after. We've got to be able to have a space where it's okay to say, look, you know what? Looking after someone with dementia is a fucking punish, you know? I, I openly say that about my own mum, who I love more than anything on this earth, okay? It's hard to look after her and it's it takes a toll. And I think, you know, my father, it, it took a toll on him. I mean, he had other things, you know. He smoked for 20 years on and off, you know, and he, he was a solicitor. So, um, you know, he went to lots of boozy conferences and lawyers' lunches and all these sorts of things. So I'm sure those sorts of things didn't help. But it's not like he was an ex-smoker kicking back on a beach with palm trees. You know, he was an ex-smoker looking in a horrible situation um, and not being allowed to say it's a horrible situation makes people shut up and it makes people deal with their suffering by themselves. It makes them less likely to ask for help and it creates more problems over and above the problem of the person that you're looking after. We just have, we cannot have this silly, oh, but you might hurt someone's, like, yeah, you might hurt someone's feelings, but also maybe those people might have the maturity, maybe they might like the, the, the respect you're showing them of having an open dialogue about, look, I respect you enough to be able to articulate my concerns in front of you, you know? I love my mum enough to be able to make a little bit of a joke about it. Like, well, yesterday was a bit hard, wasn't it, mum? I mean, <laughs> you know, you put custard in the kettle. <laughs> you know, we can't just say yesterday was perfect, mum. Like, I respect her enough to think she might be able to cope with a few uncomfortable truths because reality is uncomfortable. And the more, you know, I mean, I'm talking in the context of mental health here, but I mean, there's on every front, we're expecting conversations to be easier and sort of, um, we, we're just trying to create this world where reality isn't confronting and it's, that's just not true. It's not true. And I, you know, I, I wish my dad hadn't been in the generation that he, or well, I wish he had been in the generation he'd been in. Otherwise I wouldn't exist. Um, <laughs> wish my dad would exist in the future. What? Well, who's my dad? Is this Looper? Is my, am I going to have to travel forward in time and kill dad? Who's me? Um, I wish my dad was of the generation he was of, but I wish he, you know, I wish that generation were f hadn't become um, bound by this, yeah, that generational tick of, um, yeah, refusing to speak, not wanting to speak up for fear of causing a fuss. And I, because it, you know, it definitely impacted and, and I think 
it, well, whether or not it hastened his death, which I firmly believe it did, but even if it didn't, it definitely made his last two years less um, joyous ones because he was, for fear of speaking up about, you know, bloody hell, dealing with my wife's bloody difficult. Um, he could have got more help. He could have asked for more help. Um, and one of the... One one of the silver linings of this whole experience was that by going home, he realised, you know, me and my sister kind of um, talked to him and he saw what extra help looks like through me, you know, and he saw the, my mum's condition improve a little bit and his eyes were opened a bit and our final conversation was, you know, him saying, look, if, if one of my worst flaws is that I'm terrible at asking for help. Um, but that he did finally, you know, in his last three weeks, the three weeks after I left home, you know, he quadrupled the amount of assistance he was getting f for mum. Um, so it, he had his eyes opened and he, you know, he, he did drop that stoicism that's typical of that generation. And I'm really pleased that I was able to give him a lovely three weeks um, holiday where he didn't have to worry. And I'm really happy that three weeks after he was starting to think about the future and that would have been a nice place for him to have been in. But I, I'm just, I wish he had talked more. Um, and again, for his generation, um, I think it's a shame that they don't speak up for fear of, it was just not the done thing and you're not meant to complain. And for our generation, I think... I fear the same problem, but obviously caused by a different contributory factor, which is that we're scared of hurting feelings and we're scared of admitting that the truth is a bit grim and, and you know, look, looking after looking after people who are hard to look after is hard. <laughs> that's why it's a job. You know, that's why there is such a thing as a carer and nurses. If it was easy, there wouldn't be a career in it, you know. Oh, spending time with these people is brilliant. I spend time with them. I come away more relaxed. I've de-aged by three years and my penis has grown larger. Like this, this is great. I'll pay someone to spend time with them. Like there's a reason it's a job, you know, but the online discourse seems to sort of um, refuse to admit that it's hard. We're not allowed to admit that because that, that centers you. It's not about you. It's about them. Well, it is about you. Sorry. It's about the person that's also looking after them and they're allowed to complain. Because if we don't complain about things that are hard and we don't ask for help, right, it's a, that's another form of, well, there's a whole heap of Eastern spiritual fucking arch enemies going on there. One is rejection, right? Re rejecting a feeling. Oh, I feel... Bad. I feel so tired and shit and exhausted looking after this person. I feel, you know, it's hard and I'm sad and going, no, no, I'm not allowed to feel those things. No, no, no. Going to keep on going. Well, that's rejection, which is a form of, you know, again, like I said, you can't reject something. You can't push something away without making contact with it. So you still have a relationship with that feeling. And there's over-attachment on the other side of like, but that's that person's whole identity. Really? Well, maybe help them to step back from it and, and watch their inner landscape with a, a bit of, you know, come back to the breath. 
Okay, come back to the breath. Okay, because th- there's a lot going on inside of us that you can just watch and realize, oh, that's actually, that didn't come from me. There's a whole lot of stuff going on there. Um, and then there's also the, the you know, one of the, the eight um, parts of the, you know, the, the Eightfold Noble Path is right view. You know, seeing things for what they are, and in, in, we, we're not going to tackle complex problems if we whittle them down to a simplistic non-truth for the sake of making life happy for everyone. Because <laughs> life isn't life is hard. The truth is complex. Okay, um, and so yeah, we're we're going against the principle of right view. Okay, we, we obviously have to extend care to people who need it, but sometimes the people who need it are the people doing the caring. We can't make it some sort of, um, yeah, forbidden topic, taboo for them to go, look, doing this and dealing with the problems that my child has or my mum has or my partner has is bloody hard. And I find them annoying sometimes and it gets to me. We can't make that some sort of, um, yeah, grounds for, well, uh, uh, bashing these people online for one. Oh, I see. So selfless of you to make their ADHD or their autism all about you. It's like, well, yeah. I don't know. My thing is, my feelings are about me. Um, And by you telling me to suppress them, I'm now not even engaging with them from from the detached Buddhist perspective of just watching. I've just just kind of buried them. And that just means they're going to metastasize and come out as a heart attack in 20 years, you know? Anyway, I, I just wanted to have that conversation because one, I don't, I would thoroughly encourage you whatever you're going through don't adopt the stoicism of the previous of boomers and don't adopt the um treading on eggshellness of the current generation either because both of these are mistakes both of these are either forms of rejection or forms of attachment and surprise surprise there's a reason it's called the middle path right the middle way in Buddhism is that between those two, there's something in the middle, which is just acknowledging feelings and accepting them. We've got to accept feelings. That doesn't mean over-identifying with them, okay? And it doesn't mean pushing them away. It means accepting them. And then when we do that, we can see them for what they are and maybe, just maybe progress to um, a situation where we can help people and help all people all people's suffering is a form of suffering. You know, there's no point saying your suffering isn't suffering because it's not as bad as this other person's. Um, I mean, that's that's another that's another interesting um, online tick that I've noticed is putting forward a worse kind of suffering as um, all the uh, as sufficient reason for dis- dismissing somebody else's. It's like, you know, looking after my wife or looking after my mum with dementias. Ah, oh, it's really hard. Oh, it's really hard, is it? 
say that to someone who's getting thrown in the oven by the Nazis. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> All right. Until, <laughs> until I have a problem that's as bad as that, I'm not allowed to talk, am I? I'm not allowed to complain about anything. I mean, that, that, that you've set, set people like that. And again, going back to my analogy of people who ask questions at public events, I know here that I'm sampling from the worst of humanity. <laughs> Because the people who tend to proffer those sorts of weird conundrums, false false dilemmas, are already people we don't need to listen to. But for some reason, they are also dominating a lot of the online conversation. People seem to be offering those sorts of um, uh, what's the arguments uh, or debating tactics more. I'm seeing it more and more. So clearly people are thinking more and more that way. Um, but to just, <laughs> right. Until, right. So until, until I'm having an, ex, any, any experience that's better than that just isn't allowed to be talked about, is it? Cause somehow I'm, I'm offending the memory of, people who died in a trend in an in a genocide I mean, it's just you know that doesn't again it doesn't get us anywhere it's not right view the the right view is that that person is experiencing su- uh, suffering and so you need to offer them empathy you need to show kindness and compassion right that's not a buddhist thing right that's an that's that's been said by fucking every human rights activist who's ever been of, <laughs> successful to any degree, none of them have said, yeah, if you encounter someone who's living, ha- having a rough day or living it rough or in terrible circumstances, just remind them to shut up because they're not getting murdered by Pol Pot. <laughs> it's just no one's ever said that. No one has. It's just that is not a thing, is it? So this this knee jerk reaction again of like, oh, you're complaining. Well, what about your, you know, your wife who's going through dementia is probably going through worse. All right, okay. So until I'm also suffering from dementia, I can't talk about it, can I? <laughs> it's just so silly. Having an awful day, you know. I had to take my take my son who's. <sighs> got this condition somewhere and like, oh yeah make it about you this thing of like unless your suffering is as bad as someone else's who's worse you just can't talk about it probably one of the the, the unhealthiest pathologies of online conversation i've ever witnessed and it's and it's and it is a pathology and to me if if you're if your go-to reaction upon experiencing someone's suffering is to sort of a, not empathize and then B, point out that they should sort of be grateful for something else worse not happening to them. I just, that is that a human? Are you a human? <laughs> okay. I just, you know, and, and on Twitter as well, you know, there's just this tendency to go towards sort of comparing different types of suffering. You know, so somebody might proffer, you know, offer up a um, an individual suffering. Oh, my family, you know, were run off the road by a car yesterday. I mean, everyone, can you please retweet this and 
Um, you know, one of my children now has a needs spinal surgery or something, you know, and you'll get some smart at it going, well, at least your great grandparents weren't murdered by <laughs> invaders or something. It's like, okay, I think there's room. I can accommodate both. I mean, this is the thing with meditation and, and trying to expand your awareness, expand your consciousness and expand your heart is you're supposed to be able to fucking chew gum and walk at the same time. Like I can hold different sufferings and and feel compassion towards all of them. It's not like we're meant to trade, you know, systemic suffering. Like, well, this happened to my, you know, my family, my people hundreds of years ago. And, and, actually, and, it's, and it's still happening now. There's like, you know, systemic oppression and, you look at incarceration rates, but I, to bring that up as a sort of, well, therefore you don't get to talk about your thing. I just, I find this, you know, and everyone's at it. There's all sorts of different intersecting ways people are, you know, finding to make sure one group of people isn't allowed to complain or uh, there's a reason that their suffering shouldn't be acknowledged. Um, and I just think, you know, who's got this magic calculator? Who Who's in possession of this, you know, yeah, this magic calculator that allows you to calculate the value of different types of suffering and then kind of balance them against each other on on some sort of balance sheet? You know, well, actually, you don't, your suffering is worth 2.5 suffering points. It doesn't quite cancel out my 10.5 suffering points, so you get to shut up. I just think if, you know, and obviously there are situations where that's an app, that is an absolutely valid approach. Again, very cautious of making blanket observations because that's not always the case. Um, you know, and there are situations where people are complaining like, oh, this happened today and this is the worst and... Why isn't it? It's like, well, it, you know, to me that looks like a lack of gratitude. You know, like you, you could, things could be much worse. Um, so it, sometimes people do complain uh, too much about, but that's when they're complaining about a form of suffering that's really not that uh, genuine and the, the cause of their suffering is actually from their attachment to wanting things that not, you're not necessarily entitled to have, you know. Um, my Wi-Fi is broken and now, <laughs> so please sign my petition, you know, on the same day that there's some inquest into it, like a death in custody. It's like, yeah, do you think, do you really need to be drawing focus to that right now? Um, we're not all entitled to Wi-Fi, you know, it's not the world's most pressing concern. So that obviously there is that, but I think, yeah, there's, I think to, just to round this off and bring it back, I, th I just think, you know, Whatever your motivation is for not speaking up, um, if you are suffering, I think um, that motivation therefore needs to be questioned, whether it's the stoicism of previous generations and all oh, stiff up a lip and mustn't cause a fuss and mustn't complain. Things could be worse, you know. I mean, that's the problem with people who, you know, my dad who grew up in the shadow of a dead Hitler was like, well, you know, the... the there was a very recent example of how things could be worse, as I mustn't complain. Um, or if it's just, you know, fear of speaking a truth that might hurt someone's feelings. Well, again, I, yeah. 
mean, I, I don't know what the correct answer is, but I just think that this eggshellness might not be helping, and especially in the context of carers who might be needing help themselves to pull out the well centering yourself when it's really about this. Like, well, come on. Now, now you're just, yeah, like I said, now you're on top of the initial person's suffering. You've now thrown a second person's suffering into the mix by refusing to help them and refusing to let it be about them as well. I mean, that's the other thing. It's, it's this silly, like, false dilemma where it's, we can either focus on the person with the mental health problem or we can focus on your um, trials and tribulations in, in dealing with them. We're only allowed to focus on one. Uh, so if we focus on you, that means we're somehow denying the other person. So that's just not, that is a weird, again, Twitterism of this, like, we're only allowed to focus on one problem um, and drawing attention to one problem is to deny that all others exist. It's like, well, that's not true, is it? Um, so if you are struggling with anything, don't be stoic, but also don't be afraid <laughs> of um, breaking some eggs, is that a phrase? Um, you can't, you can't silence yourself. If you're, if you're suffering really is genuine, you mustn't silence yourself for fear of what other people will say, whether it's, whether the other people are boomers who will say, oh, he's a bit of a complainy, whingy wine pants, or if it's more the current generation who will say, you can't say that because now you know, you've hurt this person's feelings. It's like, well, Looking after people who are hard to look after is hard. And there's no shame in admitting that. We're all human. Can't just expect everyone to be fucking superheroes all the time. Um, and ironically, by letting people um, talk about how difficult it is, you might empower them to work even more effectively and become more superhuman. So there's a, you know, by expecting people to be perfect, you're going <laughs> to... You're robbing them of the chance to be human. And ultimately, it's it's humans who have to look after each other. So just expect people to be human because that's that's who's turning up. Right? The paramedics who turn up, the paramedics who turn up when my dad was having a heart attack, they're human. My dad looking after my mum, he's human. The parent looking after their child with learning difficulties, that parent is human. So when humans are in trouble and you call on someone to put their hand up, guess what? The person who put, who's putting the hand up is also human. Um, and if you're wanting something better, then um, don't ask for help. I don't know. I don't know what else you want. Um, anyway, I hope that was useful. Like I said, um, just a, a little insight into what grief for me was like um, and how mindfulness at least allowed me to weather it a tiny bit and like I said definitely didn't make it go away um, and how sitting with it and letting it be and accepting it not pushing it away or rejecting it was really helpful or over identifying it like oh, yeah, I am grief to all my grieving buddies to my grieving brothers and sisters out there no my grief is not a defining aspect of me it is a cloud on my mental skyscape you know um, and also how, yeah, taking away my smartphone and meant, meant that I didn't hit pause on a process that my body really wanted to go through. And then, yeah, the second half of the episode, I guess, in 
making sure we create, um, I guess, yes, yeah, safe spaces for people to speak up about the difficulty in, in taking on a role like this, like a carer. Because if we don't have those safe spaces and if, if we have like a punitive mindset to anyone who quote unquote centers themselves in a, in a problem that obviously is about someone else, I'm not denying that. Um, but if we have a punitive mindset, they're just going to shut up. They're just going to not speak up. They're not going to get the help they need. They're going to try and do it by themselves and they're going to pop their clogs before their time or suffer um, as, as my dad did. And towards suffering, we just, yeah, the only knee-jerk response we should have is compassion. Okay, well, thank you for listening to that. And um, again, I'm wary I might have made a few blanket statements in there. If, if any of those came across as insensitive, um, I'm very, very open to being contacted and you know, people saying, well, you didn't consider the nuance of this. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll happily uh, receive any of those sorts of comments and, and probably, you know, and then address them in future episodes if, if they seem... Um, um, if it seems constructive to do so, absolutely. That's you've got my promise on that. Um, all right. Well, much love to you all. Thank you for listening. Um, and now I have to go to the UK <laughs> again uh, to organise a funeral um, and help mum again. Help mum while organising a funeral. That's going to be really interesting. It is going to be difficult. You know, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be, I mean, the last time was hard enough. This time, this is going to, it's going to be that plus more. Um, but no, I've got, I'll, I'll, we'll have a nice support network. I'll be fine. Um, okay. Uh, let's see how we go with a, another episode in two weeks. It might not happen because I might be frantically writing a eulogy. Um, okay. But anyway, take, take care of each other. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to speak up. Don't be afraid to admit things are difficult, even if the thing that is difficult is someone else. Um, what else? You just, yeah, don't clam up. Please don't clam up. Um, all right, hopefully chat to you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you'd like to, you can support the podcast on Patreon. And um, again, I keep promising to evolve this podcast to involve interviews uh, it seems every time I promise that something awful happens. So maybe, maybe I've been promising to evolve it and then someone dies or gets an awful diagnosis. Maybe I shouldn't promise it. And then just to keep my family safe, stop promising to evolve the podcast. We're on to the, we're on to the next generation now. My sister, please don't, don't offer to start talking to interesting people. My life's on the line, but I, I will once, once this, awful patch of my life is is out of the way um i have just bought some new equipment as well um which will help me interview people so i i do always have my mind on improving this podcast and i'm putting my money where my mouth is i've, I've spent some money on some nice equipment that that will help do interviews so i that is on the that is going to happen um and now one of my siblings are going to pay the price for me saying that with some weird karmic uh punishment all right um chat soon hopefully in two weeks support me on patreon and uh yes take care of yourselves